Hi, Scott. Can you hear me? Yeah, uh, Greg. Yeah. Um, I can hear you now. Oh, okay, good. I'm, I'm can using. Can you hear me Sc- now? Yes. Excellent. interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso. Okay, for the official introduction uh, today... Talking from home with Echo in my bedroom, I'm talking with Scott Corrales, who's the founder of the Institute of Hispanic Ufology. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, And his website is called Inexplicata. And um, if you go to the site, you will read about things and hear about things and see things on the paranormal that you don't really see anywhere else because they're coming from other countries. And if you're listening to this show, you're probably in an English-speaking country, and that's probably the United States, and uh, we're famous, famously insular about uh, news from elsewhere, and uh, Scott's helping to change that. He has been for a long time. I've known Scott since the, I don't know, mid-90s, uh, I think? I was going to say 1995, uh, when I think I, uh, we first spoke. I was still living, I was living <clears throat> elsewhere in Pennsylvania at the time, and I remember... I picked up an issue of the excluded middle yeah. in Pittsburgh, and then I wrote you a letter saying, "Can I contribute something to your fine publication?" <laughs> and I said yes, I of course. If memory serves. Yeah, if memory serves, I wrote something to you on shape shapeshifters. Uh, it was something about. It was uh, there was one on the chupacabras because that was fresh at the time, or fairly fresh for this country. Right, right. That would have been '96. Yes, and I think yeah, one that, on Umo. Oh, the Umo. That's right. That's right. I that think you... was fun to do. Yeah. What did and you then find out? One on shapeshift. Yeah. What did you find out about Umo? I mean, some people may be vaguely aware of what that is, but it was kind of a big deal everywhere except the United States in the 1960s and 70s. You know, that's absolutely right. I first learned of Umo actually quite late. In 1973, when Antonio Rivera, who was the, uh, let's say, the Spanish Jacques Vallée 
or the mm-hmm. Spanish Hynek, if you will, um, wrote, well, he, he wrote his first, he'd written a book earlier in Spain on the subject, but it hadn't come to Latin America until much later. And this little book was, I think, I still have it. It's called, um, I think, UFOs in the Americas or something. OVNIs in Latino America. And that's where he starts mentioning, you know, how people in on this continent were also recipients of the famous UMO correspondence. So how does all this UMO mess start, uh, begin, actually? Everything starts, as the best stories often do, in a bar in downtown Madrid <laughs> uh, called the Happy Whale. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the best stories always happen in a bar. Yeah. And this place, the Happy Whale, La Ballena Alegre, mm-hmm. was simply the get-together of a very... I'm going to say, remember how people... Uh, 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 J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's time, they had the, the group called the Inklings. Well, you had the very same thing at this bar, uh, La Ballena Alegre, but they were all mystics and poets and survivors of the Spanish Civil War, and one of them started presenting his channeled information mm-hmm. that he was getting from a number of different extraterrestrials. And among them, were these letters from beings on Earth who came from the planet Umo, which orbits the star Wolf 424, if memory serves. Yes. And of course, uh, these, these, uh, these the Umo letters, the Umo correspondence, um, created this Jetsons-like society <laughs> where everything's perfect, where... <laughs> Everything's technological, push a button, a robot comes and picks up, you know, the dirty dishes. And at, at, as things went on, the, uh, the Umo mythos, as, as it would become, became so much more elaborate. It turned out that Umo had been a planet much like Earth until a female, a young female dictator uh, had taken over the planet. She tormented many citizens. And the revolt, I think it was some kind of rebellion. I mean, it was something straight out of L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. And, uh, of course, the more they, they wrote, the more this stuff got involved. Um, this correspondence was now reaching scientists with what was supposed to be uh, such advanced scientific knowledge that many people said, look, they must be from another world because... No one else would know that, and we're just doing this in theory. Yeah. And um, toward the late 60s, you already had people in this country receiving the UMO letters. One of a gentleman named Thomas Thomas Polk in um, right outside in uh, um, Murraysville, Murraysville outside of uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And these were people just being included into the correspondence. I believe Valet was included. Um, Salvador Freixedo yeah. was included. Uh, if, if, if people knew you, if these so-called Umites knew you or had heard about you, you'd end up getting an envelope with uh, their latest, you know, something like, like round robins, alien extraterrestrial round robins is what, that's yeah. what they were. And... So, you know, so time goes on, and books are written, and people argue back and forth, so to, you know, yeah. to make the long story short, uh, in the 1990s, a gentleman named Jose Luis Peña comes out and says, people, this was the joke of the century. I made it all up. Here is 
the stamp with the UMO logo. Uh, here's the, the piece of Tedlar. It was some kind of polyethylene that he was passing off as alien, you know, some alien rubber used in spacecraft. <laughs> um, but then again, the, the story was so good, the, the mythos was so established that people said there's no way this Jose Luis Jordan Peña can be the one source of everything. Yeah. And to this day, you have people saying, look, I saw the letters, I saw, I read them. They're from another world. They're just, they just conveniently said they were going back to their home planet, which is why we haven't heard from them again. Right. So, you know, it, it, to me, it was a, it's always been an example about belief. If you are willing to believe something, uh, Roswell, Bigfoot, Atlantis, Loch Ness Monster, Umo, you will believe it. And it doesn't matter any information to the contrary. No one will change your mind. And to this day, you still have um, friends of Umo uh, exchanging messages on the Internet, talking about what, what, what things must be like. Has there been another civil war on Umo? And, and such like. <laughs> Even so after you can see, Pena uh, 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 provided all this evidence that it was... Uh, has anybody else in the group ever come forward? Uh, no. No. I think many people had, by that time, already left and moved on to other... Um, pursuits, the original, I think the gentleman's name was Eduardo Buelta, the very first one who was receiving, allegedly receiving these messages. By this time, he had moved on to much more spiritual messages received by, I think, an ancient Roman spirit who was giving him all kinds of, you know, contactee stuff, you know, basically. But the interesting thing is that Jordan Peña figured if people fell for Umo, I can make them fall for another similar social experiment. Yeah. He came up with another uh, cult, if you like, called the uh, Pyrophos, which <laughs> means like fire, fire breather, fire something. Yeah. And he just told people, look, this is the god of fire. He speaks through, through me, and he's telling you to do this and that. And he would take a piece of phosphorus out of his pocket in a dark room. And people would go, wow, oh my God, <laughs> this, this, alien, this deity really exists. <laughs> or, or something like it. And, yeah. of course, that was an experiment. People were very, very embarrassed when it finally came out that he'd done this. <laughs> and uh, recordings exist, all his admissions are on right. tape. Yeah. But you still have the tractors who say, no, no, Umo happened. This other group also happened. They're all real. We saw the God of Fire in his hand. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's just, you know, call it, call it gullibility. Yeah. But it's not as much ingullible as we as human beings have this need to believe. It, it, that's, that's all it is. And many times we can believe in things that, um, you know, for which there isn't much evidence, and you have religions that have been around for 2,000 years uh, on somewhat flimsy, you know, <laughs> evidence. Yeah, and, and we feel fine about it. We build cathedrals, so so why not Umo? Why not uh, Pirophos? Why not other groups like them? Yeah, uh, the thing yeah, I'm always were... huh? Go ahead. No, I was going to say that I believe it's in um, in one of Valet's books in Revelations. He discusses uh, one of Umo's offshoots in Argentina, and it was operating under a different name. I believe it was Hono. 
uh, but it was still the very same, the same logo, the same H yeah. logo with a bar struck right through the middle, mm-hmm. the whole thing. So it's, it's, been, it's become one of the most enduring um, uh, hoaxes, let's use that ugly word, hoaxes in, uh, <laughs> in UFO lore in the Spanish-speaking world. Well, uh, I recently discovered a site called the Museum of Hoaxes. Have you ever seen that? No, I never have. Yeah, it's online. Uh, it's called the I've Museum. I've got to check it out. Yeah, I don't think Umo's in there. And they've got all kinds of other stuff in there, like the boy, well, in, the, boy in the balloon and the, the Florida Scoutmaster with the shaved monkey right. and the whole bit. But they don't have Umo, which is kind of strange. Maybe you better write it up, or uh, well, you know the most about it. Well, you should send them the article from Excluded Middle. I mean, they would benefit from that, I think. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that's right. I don't have it on uh, uh, and any disc yeah, anymore. Yeah. I might have to, like, scan it. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll, I'll, I still have it. I can pass it on to you, certainly, certainly. Okay. You know, or... it's just, nowadays, I think we find, um, and, and for some reason we're talking about hoaxes, I'm taken back to the late, uh, no, yeah, it was, it was late, it was probably 1996 or thereabouts, 97. There was, shortly after the Chupacabras broke, there was a hoax in Puerto Rico involving a, a company selling little tiny keychains with like this rubber gray aliens inside them, floating liquid. Yeah. Uh, like those little keychains from Disney World that would have the monorail inside of them. Yeah, yeah. And this had a little gray alien. And people were going on television saying, oh, look, this is proof that aliens are really here. And they would go on television. And I think a man was shot was shot in his car uh, during a period of lawlessness at that time in, in San Juan. And they found his keychain with a little alien artery, you know, the little keychain thing. Yeah. And they said, oh, well, he, they killed him because he wanted to take the proof that he, the greys exist and are with us, and look how small they are. You know. People Forget seriously it. believe People that a... Believe it they seriously believe that seriously. a keychain with a plastic alien in it was proof of... What the well, hell's going on there the in Puerto Rico? That, <laughs> well, let me tell you, that's, that's why I think after... I'm going to say maybe after 1998-99, very little having to do with chupacabras, el yunque, UFOs ever came out of Puerto Rico because no one wanted to hear about it. Uh, I can tell you, if you look at it at an explicata, just go right back, I think our electronic files start in December 2005. Yeah. There may be, I'm going to say, I can count them on the fingers of one hand, stories from Puerto Rico. Huh. And they've been from groups of correspondents known to me. Um, but usually anything else has been, um, there was a, a mass hysteria in southwestern Puerto Rico, and sometimes in 2004, about an entity crossing a road. People were coming from all over the island to that darkened road to see this lady in white crossing the highway. It turned out to be a hoax, and, you know, just, you can't, after a while, people feel, you know, we've been burnt enough. So the real case, stuff that's interesting is just becoming, you know, something traded among researchers. It's no longer appearing in the media. Right. What? You, so the big what? newspaper... Oh, go ahead. But, no, there, there was a, um, a tabloid 
much in the style of, I'm going to say, the Daily News or the New York Post, called El Vocero. And, of course, it was known, its reputation is that of a, I don't know, a scandal rag, uh, but a scandal rag of crime and violence, you know. And they figured, look, UFOs are sorted enough that let's become the go-to source for UFOs. And they had a very, very good correspondent on that beat called Julio Victor Ramirez. And um, he handled the UFO beat manfully from, I'm going to say, 1990 through 97 when I think he had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> uh, that's a story. Yeah. That, that, that I, at least that, that's what they say. Um, but after that, the newspaper changed ownership, and the new, edit, the new publisher was a, um, I don't want to say religious fanatic, but he believed that UFOs were of the devil, he didn't want them in his newspaper, yeah. and uh, they stopped running stories. So we have not seen out of Puerto Rico anything that isn't directly from uh, from one of our, our correspondents, from one of our researchers. So you have a, this is the Institute of Hispanic, Ufo, Hispanic Ufology. You have, is it basically you or you organized it and then you take reports from these different people you've uh, contacted in all the con different countries? Pretty much. There's a, it's a rather involved story. Uh, back in the 90s, I was working very closely with a cryptozoologist in, in Veracruz, um, Dr. Rafael Lara, and we met up in Mexico in 1997, and he said, look, why don't, with all the information that you already have, all the stuff you're writing for, for newsletters, for zines, why don't set up a virtual institute, very much like the virtual cryptozoology institute that I think Michelle, Michelle Reynaud has set up in Europe. Yeah. And he said, that, 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 that should work. And uh, we threw the idea around, and a year later, I had a little, you may perhaps remember, I had a little um, newsletter called Samizdat back yeah. then. And we figured, let's, let's just stop the Samizdat, because people were complaining the news was getting old. By the time I printed it out, by the time it got to Bob Gerard, by the time he sold it from our tourist books, yeah. the stories were, you know, what, what wasn't uh, a, a feature was already rather old. Yeah. So we figured, let's do it this way. Let's start uh, this institute, and we will try to put the stories online immediately and save the features for the journal. And that's what we've been doing ever since. He, uh, Dr. Lara dropped out um, in the very late 90s, maybe 2000, because of political pressure, which is an interesting little digression. But... Um, so we continued with uh, our group of correspondents, contributing editors from Spain, Puerto Rico, Mexico, Argentina, and the occasional odd reports from different countries. And it's been fun. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is I did a lecture last year. Uh, uh, yeah, last year. And uh, I called for the dissolution of large UFO groups because I thought they were... Um, Thank God. Thank God someone did. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's not like I I have any power to say anything or nobody anybody's going to listen to what I say. But during the lecture, I just said um, if we're going to, I think if we're going to get anywhere, we need uh, possibly to have um, a bunch of small groups all doing different things, all communicating over the internet uh, because it's very and you recognize this very early on. So um, 
uh, inexplicable. Well, the uh, Institute of Hispanic Ufology is actually an example of this. And also, I think it's important to have it in this country. Where, where were you? Where are you from originally? Oh well, that's interesting. I was born in New York City. Oh really? Uh, but my parents are from Cuba. <laughs> oh okay, okay. Yeah, so, yeah. So that's um, that's the connection. Yeah, they came here after. Yeah, yeah, and then we lived in out, out of the country in Mexico and Puerto Rico and Spain, and um, so of course you can see whenever I'm doing something, I'm automatically translating, interpreting, you know, doing all kinds of stuff. I do voiceovers in Spanish, you name. Hmm. So to just do this. On, as a sideline, of, you know, yeah. keep people informed with second nature. And, of course, remember, I would have never... I'd, I'd been interested in ufology yeah. since I was very small, probably eight, nine years... No, seven, eight years old in Mexico because of the waves of UFOs going on there at the time. Hmm. And I said all our teachers... I, I say this in every interview. All our teachers at the time kept saying... You know, you kids are the privileged generation. You just saw the lunar landing. You're going to see humans on Mars in another 10 years. Yeah. And before the century is out, you know, this is wishful thinking, right? And before the century well, is out, you will probably be see, see humans shaking hands with extraterrestrials. Uh, so how much more privileged can you be? You know, you should cherish <laughs> this. You should read up on it. You should yeah. buy the magazine. Get into it. And we were all, all of us, you know, youngsters were, were in there, you know, and we'd read, uh, I mean, we had so many mags at the time, you know, in Spanish. Yeah. But um, the very same thing was going on in uh, in Europe. Uh, Spain had its own great magazines. One was called Mundo Desconocido, which has never, never been equaled um, on this side of the Atlantic, at least. It's like like, like a Spanish flying saucer review. Uh, oh, okay. France had yeah. Mia de la Nuit. So, you know, so it was a great age of... I don't want to call them pulps, but I mean, they were just, you know, nicely stapled wraps and great information by people who were the, the best thinkers, you know, the, the intelligentsia of the moment. Yeah. And, um, but, but going back to what you were saying, though, Greg, I'm very glad to hear that someone called the dissolution of large, of these large monolithic bodies, because we still have a bit of that in Latin America. I think people feel... Uh, oh, something happened. Someone has to get in touch with MUFON or get in touch with KUFO, so let them know. No, no, guys, you are sufficient unto yourselves. You have yeah. the internet, you have a voice. If you need someone like me to come and translate it and then pass it along, more than happy to do it. Yeah. And, but there's still a very, in a way, it's a very charming 1960s, 1970s thing about people getting together in a group and finding an acronym. Let's have come up with a catchy <laughs> acronym that has yeah. either both me or UFO in it. Yeah. And, and we're set. Because now we're a group and we can look, we can put on these serious faces and sunglasses and we can put fishing vests on and look like, like I don't know what. But uh, they do it anyway. Yeah, well. And it's a shame because, you know, this is. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's a shame because ever since the, the early days of, um, of the Internet, you've, you've had people basically being their own best advocates for their cases. Uh, of course, you have a lot of, um, you know, I don't want to say the word liars, it's very ugly, but uh, <laughs> people who have taken advantage of it without perhaps the benefit of an organization that acts as a filter, as a barrier, as an arbitrator. But even then, these large organizations just seem to be um, 
I don't know, I, I, you'll forgive my imagery, but they're like gigantic sumo wrestlers sitting on the information. You, they're unmovable. They answer to their own um, appointed bureaucracies. And it, everything seems to be, no, we will tell you what's important, we'll tell you what's real, and can you come to our next conference? Um, in the age of the Internet, that's something else that can be done away with. It shouldn't be as important. The amount of conferences that are held. Uh, many people, like myself, we can't travel. I'm, I'm, my business has one captain and one crewman. That's me. So I step <laughs> away from my business. That's money that doesn't get made. So um, it, it's, there are ways, I'm sure, that... You know, through, through chats, I'm, I'm sure that there, there has to be a way. There are technical minds out there, yeah, not techno peasants who could actually figure out, you know, how to make this happen. Well, we but did have it happen recently. Tested. We did have it happen recently. Oh. We, uh, there was a uh, series of about four uh, conferences online only. Uh, the alternative universe uh, conference that I sort of helped organize. Uh, I spoke at it twice. What what it was was we just had people wherever they were. Um, you know, Chris O'Brien was on once. Ken Thomas was on once. Ah. And they just set up a webcam in their house, and whoever wanted to could pay. You know, I think it was ten dollars, and you get five hours of speakers, and you just sit in front of your computer and watch it. And then you don't have to travel anywhere. Uh, I don't think that kills the uh, conference thing. I I think it's just an adjunct to it for people that can't. Don't can't afford or don't have the time to travel to conferences. And then there was a live question and answer afterwards, and people could uh, call in or, or uh, email or, or chat questions to the speaker. Well, you see, that that sounds like a 21st century approach to the question. We have the technology. It's a matter of saying someone like, like yourself to come and organize it, someone to figure out the technical aspects, and everyone else to, to agree or say, look, I'm willing. And um, and share their knowledge, share what you know. Uh, that to me would be much more. And of course, I'm sure you could save some of the information if you wanted to. Um, to I guess you know, write write your own reports on, on matters being discussed, or can, you could even I guess publish um, uh, proceedings from the video proceedings if necessary. Yeah. From from the conference. Um, but all online. But can, online, sure, sure. I mean, it, it, it certainly would be, but even if you needed some kind of a hard copy for people to have right. a, a DVD of some sort, print on demand, be a way of, save, of saving those. Uh, exactly, exactly. And people, see, because uh, then again, remember, my, my mindset is always uh, much far, further back in time. I, I still see ufology or whatever this is as um, something that's from a print medium. You read it. Yeah. Um, if you don't have that hard copy to study, then you're not. It becomes entertainment, and um, you know that that's that's been my. For example, staying up listening to late night radio, whatever you have, you know, different shows. Um, you start realizing, you know, if, if I can't get that book, or if the person is just saying, you know, very very, you know, uh, I'm going to say straightforward opinions they may have. Yeah. It's just entertainment. It's like, oh, look, I'm going to. It's a drive time. You're helping me spend a couple of hours until I fall asleep or I've got to get from here to the next town, and you're talking to me. But as research, there has to be some kind of printed – or as you say, even a blog. You know, you can print out a blog oh, yeah. and just 
you do that use that for research sure yeah most definitely i i, I think yeah, all this stuff we're at a we're at a, sort of a crossroads now um it's just that i i think yeah we're um we're at a sort of crossroads with the transition between the printed word and the purely audio video um realm where you start seeing newspapers disappearing uh, periodicals are disappearing. Um, the UFO print media, with, with I guess one or two exceptions, is gone. And people want to hear. People's, I guess, attention span has also changed because of computer usage. Right. So they want to hear it. They want to see it. But they don't necessarily want to read it. They don't want to look at footnotes. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a, a new world, definitely. Yeah. Well, I... So there, I guess there are different ways of approach. The uh, I, I think you make a very good point, uh, and I, I haven't really thought about that. I mean, I'm I'm at home fine in both worlds, but there are people that were born after us. Sometimes, you know, maybe twenty years after us, and to right. them, I you don't really think about it. But the the printed word is not really. I mean, in a book, is not really a part of their what their their normal everyday uh way of getting information i haven't read a newspaper in years i get it all off the internet now. same here <laughs> sadly you know and this is i should be shamed whenever my local newspaper calls for subscription i usually hang up or i tell them you know I'll, I'll read your online version but things have just sort of outlived their usefulness although that means we're not going to have you know, the newspaper, the microfiche catalogs that no one was using anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, that, that, that printed support, that hard copy that was so essential for research, for entertainment, it's fine. You know, I'll, I'll, you can just look it up and you're going to find the electronic version just fine. Yeah. But now that people have made the transition, um, will we even bother having converting the old microfiche to something machine-readable? Is, or what has happened to clippings? You know, it's um, for political matters. We'll always have the proper support of libraries, but for something that's out in left field, like the paranormal, I think we're going to lose a lot of information. And that's why I think one of the greatest things, one of the greatest tools uh, that we ever had was Lou Farish's uh, UFO news clipping service. Oh yeah, I'm not sure if it's still out there. But uh, let me tell you, he, he did sterling work for a generation. And there's so much stuff there. I have all these printouts. And I've, never really, I've never really properly read. And I think, who's going to go ahead and try to scan all this onto a disk or something that people will have access to it 20 years from now? Of course, if anyone cares, 20 years from now, there's also that. Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody will really care except some extremely dedicated researchers. And that's the other thing about the large UFO groups. I'm not, I, I didn't say do away with them and throw them in the trash. What should be done, I think, is to take all of their sighting reports, all of their information, and catalog it somehow. Enter it all into a database like um, Jacques Vallée did in a limited right. way in the 1960s and um, start massaging that data, mining through it, and see if any patterns emerge that we haven't seen before. There may be some clue in all those hundreds of thousands of reports from 
QFOs and MUFON and uh, Bufora and and uh, anybody else, any 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 other groups around the world that have collected all this information. Well, that's true, and I think the uh, UFOCAT project that Vicente Juan Ballester Olmos has yeah has gone a long way for doing that. It's very very it, it's a very 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 well respected and very very serious project. Yeah, and it's I think the closest thing. To, to what you're suggesting, except you're right. What is in all these journals that we have been piling up? I've got a stack of um, international UFO reporters, uh, magazines here, about 150 issues that I bought from the late Bob Gerard, I'd say about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I maybe read through a couple dozen of them, and I've not bothered scanning through the rest. Um, if, but if, if, exactly presented into a database format where you could just cross-reference electronically, that would certainly be a boon to, uh, to researchers. Um, and of course, it has, it would, if it could be made international, I mean, I'm sure we have information from China, from their gigantic UFO groups um, that could be made available and translated. Um, India, I'm sure, has databases. But then again, we seem to be uh, so Roswellized yeah. that there's no time for anything else. Um, and I'm, I'm telling you, there are amazing cases and cases that do trouble and task researchers, which the same intensity that re- that Roswell has done uh, to the research community stateside. Yeah. I you probably have a really good uh, perspective on well, of course, Hispanic ufology, but. Uh, <clears throat> information coming from other countries. Do you, and this is one I try to bring up with people who might know. Um, do you think if we looked at the databases and the reports from other countries as a as a whole, that we'd find that there are trends, um, uh, conventions, uh, what what do you want to call it? Uh, just parts of the data that t- tend to be endemic to those countries and not here, like. They would almost never see a gray, you know, before 1990 or whatever in um, where, like in Africa or or in India or something like that. Right. Right. Do you think that there's a there's real strong cultural, you know, differences, and why do you think those are with perception? Because if it was the same thing, we should all be able to say it's the same thing. But we know for a fact, I think that it's not. Well, I think that much has been said about that. And I think even Ballet himself wrote about it in, in the Dimensions or one of his other, his earlier works. Yeah. Um, when you're looking at Latin America, you're looking at everything, let's say, from Mesoamerica, from Mexico to um, Central America, then South America proper. Um, you still get, a, you, in the 1950s, you were getting uh, truly non-human entities reported as your CE3s. Yeah. Um, by the 1970s, early 80s, you were still seeing small humanoids. You were seeing very tall humanoids, the so-called blondes, mm-hmm. were also entering in reports. But now that we have access, thanks to a very, very, very good researcher, uh, Jose Manuel Bautista in, in southern Spain, in Seville, he has done basically what we're talking about. He's taken the research of a 70s 
group called um, El Grupo Herena, because of that's the town Herena was where they lived. Mm-hmm. And that was led by a writer, researcher named Manuel Osuna. And we now have all this information from that time, all these reports that have been put together on a single disc, and we're seeing how for a period spanning 1972 to 1979, and of course, I'm sure there were hoaxes, I'm sure there were misunderstandings, um, I'm sure there were also you know, summer stories, June bugs, if you want to call them, somewhere <laughs> in there. Yeah. Uh, there were, in fact, cases involving landings, uh, CE2s, uh, robots, robotic creatures, uh, tall entities, short entities, like we had here around the same time, stateside, 1973, the year of the humanoids. Yeah, uh, which we never discussed. That has, I have never ever seen that mentioned again. Yet, it, when you interview, in fact, I wrote a rather long essay in Spanish about the year 1973, and I interviewed some, you know, some of our researchers who were active at the time. Yeah, and they all said they still could not believe. For example, Stan Gordon has the most amazing stories. Oh yeah, of yeah. The year 73. Yeah. Um, and of course, he said that at one point his phone was ringing all night. And it wasn't people reporting strange things. It was the state police saying, Stan, come out. Yeah, we need you. <laughs> and you can imagine, you start reading these reports, these carefully, you know, you, you can imagine they're, they're typewritten on A10 format paper, then scanned. Yeah. Uh, the local, the Guardia Civil, the Spanish uh, state police, you know, running around, what's this? They, it landed, it left burn marks. There's a creature, the children ran away, you know, so... So it's it's a very same situation. Now, I think um, when it comes to Spain, you have that situation. Mexico had its intense uh, early to mid-70s UFO situation, petered out later in the decade. Argentina and Brazil were always the heavyweights when it came to um, humanoid encounters. But not Mm. just that, just regular basic lights in the sky. That's always been... It was the, the ABC powers, as they were called, Argentina, Brazil, and Chile, have always been major sources of all kinds, all manners of encounters. You know, and now the abduction phenomenon is where I think you have that's the uh, that's that, that's the, the breakwater. Uh, at no point did the abduction phenomenon become as rife as it did stateside. I don't think. Um, there were people who claimed having been abducted, but, I mean, you never know if it was your medication. I mean, you never know. You, it, it, it's hard to tell. You never had the solid medical background. You could say, okay, this person clearly had no medical psychological issues. That was never done. Mm-hmm. But I think in Spain, and in fact, I think there's only... Spain contributes one very important case to abduction research, even though the researcher involved is very modest about it. Uh, his name is Josep Quijarro. He's from Barcelona. And while on the trail of abductions in the late 80s, early 90s, he happened to stay at the home of an abductee mm-hmm. to see if he could catch anything actually happening. And he was able to see through an open door a diminutive creature walk past the door on its way to the abductee's bedroom. When was this? This was, would have been probably 1990, in the outskirts of Barcelona. And he was pinned down to his bed, 
He said he, he doesn't know if it was his own fear or pinned down by an external force. Yeah. But he saw this uh, the, uh, diminutive entity in silhouette walks right past his open door toward the bedroom where the abductee happened to be. And I think, you know, uh, it's not my forte. I don't know very much about abduction research. Yeah. But I don't think any other researcher can lay claim to a similar experience. Uh, did he? Not that I've read. Yeah. Did he? I guess he wrote this up um, in a detailed manner. What uh, What else happened during this, and what was the aftermath, and uh, did it happen again? No, he never. It never happened again. He had. Uh, he was investigating this one. Um, this one female abductee, and decided to stay a night there to see if he could probably catch, you know, catch something as it happened. And he noted that early that evening, he could start feeling a sense of, of unreality in the house. And, uh, you know, people overseas don't go to bed early at all. Um, they're, they, they're wide awake at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. Yes. They decided to call it an early night because of this sense of disquiet that was invading the house. Huh. And he was there. In fact, I think the, I, his book is called Infiltrados. It's never, even though I, try, I, I approached Ron Bonds, the late Ron Bonds of, of Illuminate Press, to translate it, uh, to offer it in English, he wasn't interested. It's a shame. It's a shame because it's a good book. It's, it's very much, it shows another aspect of abduction research that no one ever became familiar with, what was going on overseas. Yeah. And uh, I think, I, I, I don't want to add to the story. Because uh, you know it, it's wacky enough as it is, that he was lying in bed, fully dressed, with his camera, thinking if something should happen, I'll have the presence of mind to take a picture. <laughs> but when something did happen, he was perfectly aware, but uh, rendered, you know, immobile. So, you know, what does one make of these things? Could could the researcher be as equally um, affected by some external force, be it magnetism, be it some kind of suggestion that we don't know? They were having many, many cases at the time. Other researchers looked into it. They also wrote about it. Uh, but that seemed to disappear with the 90s. Uh, it's never been a big area of, um, of uh, to put it politely, a further ufological endeavor. Yeah. Um, since the, uh, the early 2000s. Well, it seems like, uh, is this available translated anywhere? I mean, I, I think there'd be insights in there that people should take to heart because we both know the uh, the uh, cultural imperialism of the <laughs> abduction literature research of the United States, mainly the United States. I don't think there's any famous British abduction researchers, at least that have put out big books, but I would venture to say they're not much different than the American ones. Well, I guess you know, all that can, comes to mind is Jenny Randall's books right. uh, from the UK. But, but that's, that's, that's about it. Uh, and, um, but no, 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 uh, Infiltrados is not available in translation. And in fact, when I found that no one was interested, I didn't pursue the project for a very good reason. I have a drawer full of translations that no one wanted. Uh, some major books like Fleshedo's, uh Beware of the Gods remain huh. electronic files. And his other book, The Human Farm, remains a printout. I'm going to have to scan it if someone should ever be interested, or at least 
when I donate my collection to some library that may be interested in keeping it, you know, in some dusty alcove. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, seriously. But um, a lot of these things is... I, I, I included, I think, Gijarro's experience in one of my articles for an explicata or something that probably got published in Fate um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. But uh, there's so much information that we've, you know, I've tried my best, either writing my own material, my own research, and including uh, interesting tidbits, or straight translations of the work of others. That, you, know, you just offer them on the Internet. And I look back to an explicata as it was in the early years that had the features. And you think, my God, look at all that information that no one will ever act upon. And I'm guessing this is why, basically, for some reason, I have this academic mindset, I think, that going to, you know, to college did that to me. Yeah. That you are doing this so that another researcher will pick up the ball and run with it and include it in his or her own research. And, you know, you'll, you'll be referenced and you'll be footnoted and this will go and that information will keep, won't die the death of being in a magazine. Because who saves magazines? Yeah. Uh, unless you're me. You know, you. Or me, yeah. I've <laughs> got a bunch of them, too. Read a mag- yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, researchers, you know. Uh, we're researchers. We, we save our periodicals. And we, can, and we go out to flea markets, and if we see periodicals, we acquire more. We just add to it. Mm-hmm. But the average person reads their issue of you know, famous flying saucers or whatever and pitches it or gives it to the library. And the information that you were providing there as part of an article disappears there if the right person didn't get it. Um, and even so, even though you know, we, do, we have our blogs and we write features elsewhere, you know, you never know, did the information reach the right person, or is it just entertainment? You know. And I noticed that came to an end. I'm sitting here, and I'm looking at the bookcase with my UFO books at a distance, and there's a book by Michael Kraft called Alien Experiences, I think. And that's the last time I saw a book, is from the mid-90s, that seemed to include a lot of research that he'd gleaned from the publications at the time, uh, from Fade, from uh, California UFO, from UFO Universe. Yeah. And I don't see that. Everything just seemed to be either we don't publish footnotes and endnotes anymore because we can't afford it, or publishers don't do that, or if we're self-publishing, we don't. We can't afford that, you know. We're for Publish America. We won't want to pay the extra money to print footnotes. So yeah, it, it, it all disappears. As I said, a lot of hard realities that uh, I think are never considered in the rush, in the rush to somehow land people on television. Yeah. I think we. And this is, you know, people, you know, are going to hear this and they're going to say, "Well, Scott Corrales is obviously jealous." Not at all. I've had, you know, I've had people from Australia in this office interviewing me from Japan. Uh, I've been on, I think, I think there's, there's something about me on, online, I think, from um, uh, it's a show called Alien Vampire. I think that's what it's called. Um, and they were here and they were very nice. But television, uh, it, it, the whole idea that I'm going to do this 
to land myself a show. You know, uh, I'm not good looking enough to be an entertainer, and I think many people out there aren't either. You know, with all due respect. Yeah. But um, it, it seems that, that, that we're just so mediatized now. The idea is, can we get Animal Planet to buy another pilot? <laughs> and, and it's funny, because I'm sitting there watching all these shows, the one about, the one I see people talking about on the Internet, the one on National Geographic that's been excoriated. Um, and I think, well, that is what happens. This is supposed to be, you know, a thing that you read, a thing that you you dwell upon, you cross-reference, you think, hey, I've read that somewhere else. And then you go back and you see that there was other information that should have been included that wasn't. And a good example of a case that keeps coming back, like, you know, like the undead, is the case of the, uh, the Drapa stones from Tibet. <laughs> the Allegedly, the stones... Disc seven thousand years old. God yeah. knows. Gordon Crichton from Flying Saucer Review right. drove a stake through that puppy in 1978, and he said it's all a bad translation. It's all a mistranslation, and he wrote a beautiful article that is still in Flying Saucer Review. If FSR's holdings are still available online, if they were ever scanned, I don't know. But that mystery, that riddle, was solved. But I still see people saying, oh, the Chinese Roswell. You know, it's like, oh, God. But what can you do? You just, you know, you shake your head and drink another cup of coffee. Yeah, I think people are more interested in, uh, well, if those shows are basically interested in, um, they're they're selling commercial time, so they have to keep people interested. So those shows are not, um, they're, they're, they're not serious research or anything like that, even though they try to pretend that they are. What they are is entertainment, and everybody knows that. But the thing about them is, you know, you know, five million people see a show, and maybe two of those will take it far enough that they contribute something, uh, even if it's you know ten, twenty, thirty years in the future because they're kids now. Um, and I, I think there's well, some val- there, you know, there's that some value in that, I guess. That 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 could plant a seed, definitely. But I'm finding that now. Having been, let's say, um, one of the kids, yeah, who watched uh, In Search of. Yeah, that's what I, I watched. Watched the episode. Yeah, I think we, I think we all did, and I see how serious they were, and of course you say, hey, Mr. Spock is the host, but that didn't matter. <laughs> I mean, the information and some of the topics um, was so good that I still find myself referring to those um, episodes now, especially when it comes to subjects like the California Bigfoot that uh, Peter Gatilla and uh, Deanne Slate were writing about in the 70s. Um, I think a lot of those old shows, those old documentaries, and there's an old documentary with William Shatner, too, I seem to recall, about UFOs. Um, they seem to, be, to say, look, this is going to be, this is information, it may not be presented in a, you know, spectacular manner. Yeah. This is info that we think you should have to know about. But you're right. A lot of kids will look at finding Bigfoot now. And when they're older, they'll look back at this or they'll say, hey, remember that? And um, start reading or, well, reading or looking for visual audio information online. Yeah. Or whatever the internet has mutated into 20 years from now. Yeah, it'll be so, like, you know, brain download yeah, or something. Yeah. <laughs> 
But, you know, it's, technology is moving by so quickly that we're talking about information being lost. I have all my information on the Argentinian cattle mutilations of 2000 on, you know, three-and-a-half-inch discs. Oh, no. And if someday my little external disc reader, you know, conks out and they've stopped making them, well, uh, you know, that's going to be that, that's gonna, just like a, like a microfiche file. You will not have any way of accessing it. Should there, should there be a, a need, you know, like what was the source information, we'd like to have it, you know, whatever. Uh, so we have, still have a lot of stuff that is old material of interest but inaccessible. Will the things that we have now be, you know, available to someone when it becomes Web 4.0, 5.0, whatever it is they have 20 years from now? And, of course, maybe it's, it's not up to us to worry about what technology is going to be. Just focus on what we have now. But I know that I have a translation of um, Juan Jose Benitez's very first book on UFOs on five-inch floppies. Oh, my and God. that's irretrievable. Oh. Yeah, that, that's irretrievable. So, <laughs> well, you so can, all that effort, you know. Yeah, yeah. you can get, I think, I'm those sure. readers, uh, probably you can find on the Internet somebody that has them. Uh, maybe they're selling them on... Uh, Oh, but then you'd have to get an old computer that could read the stuff and yeah, and, and then possibly email that information somewhere or something. Well, actually, see, that, that would be the easy part for me. I still have my old 386 that I wrote all my stuff on back in the 90s. Yeah. So I could just plug it into that. <laughs> yeah, see, that's the thing. Legacy, save your legacy systems. They, they, they call that for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, when you start looking at... Um, well, even, I think it, 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 information is harder to hold on to. I think in other countries, we have our li- excellent, you know, nationwide li- library systems with all kinds of things. But in other countries where they have no libraries, there's no, no public libraries as such, uh, information is jealously guarded. I think it's very hard for someone here to imagine. Yeah. Um, well, why can't you go to the local library and get that book? Well, you don't. You walk into the library, a very serious official faces you and says, I will find that book for you if it exists. Please wait. And they vanish into the stacks and they say, yeah, here it is or it is not here. And in either way, you can't, you can't leave the premises. So there's no – what we have, if let's say that there were books on UFOs in Spanish, French, Italian, whatever, that could be available to a public library system those aren't readily available to people. You can't take them out, at least. Maybe you could take a little spy camera, or just your, you know, your, your the digital camera, and take pictures of pages you find interesting, yeah. or something like that. But I find that there, a lot of information has been lost uh, overseas. Books that were simply printed on lousy pulp paper, uh, books that were lost in floods, you know, the Mexican earthquake in the 80s, uh, in the 90s, in the, in the mid-80s, rather, I think a lot of buildings and things fell. And a lot, so we still have a lot of little publications here that um, hold information that's of interest and of value. But if there isn't that academic, that not academic, scholarly um, interest in saying, well, let's 
include this with this other research or just compare and contrast and whatever. Um, it's it's just there. It's just cases and cases and cases that um, are interesting but of not much use to anyone else. Yeah, well, we got to find a... Uh, I hate to be so downbeat. No, no, we've got to find a... Uh, you know, why didn't uh, Rockefeller or... Uh, who is that Mormon guy? I can't remember. Anyway, why, I, you keep wondering why these people didn't just say, okay, here's five researchers. You're going to take all the information that's come in the past and your job for like, you know, five years will be entering this all into a database and the database will be disseminated to everybody. Um, that That would have been a dream. So who that knows is. if somebody can do that in the future? That would be an extremely valuable and forward-thinking approach. Well, let's hope. We'll keep our fingers crossed. But not, not, I, was, I was about to say something. Uh, actually, I can't remember what we were saying. We were talking about the, uh, getting all the information, uh, having an angel come in and, and uh, pay some researchers to uh, catalog it all. An angel, well said. Yeah. Uh, it would have to be someone who's really disinterested, who does not expect results skewed this way or the other. So this is research for the sake of research. It's valuable information. You guys, as you said, will be in charge of just entering it and making it available. Uh, this stuff, information is worthless if it's not shared. Mm -hmm. And um, the stuff that we're doing um, in, an in an explicata, I mean, especially, you may have noticed we have... Um, since last year, a lot of the old Argentinian cases from the 1970s, these were all being compiled by a dear friend and researcher who's now left the field, Carlos Uchuk. I think he had, he had his own reasons for leaving ufology, and he closed down his website, and we still have his information, so I'm trying to make sure that that torch or that little ember is passed on forward. I mean, another language for people to see what was going on. If you want CE2, CE3s, um, military cases, of which there are many, military moments in Argentina, they're all there now. You just keep passing the information forward. Hopefully someone, it'll be of use to someone. Otherwise, at least it's kept somewhere safe. Yeah. But that's a very, very good idea to have someone, if someone were to, to materialize, to do it. And start entering all these things. Yeah, I don't I mean, many... I find very valuable... Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, as I was going to say, I find in uh, the old... Um, some of the very old magazines, let's say from the 70s, things that no one even read because of the poor quality of the publications, like, like Beyond Reality, that used to publish around 77, 78. Yeah. Um even though the stories were iffy, a lot of Bermuda Triangle, a lot of Loch Ness Monster, uh, you still find the odd paragraph that says, whoa, this, where did they get this? And it makes you want to backtrack and see exactly what were they reading? Did they get this from FSR? Did they get this from, this from somewhere else? Yeah. Uh, and those commercial pulps have to also be combed through very carefully. Well, I, I have... Uh... One copy of a magazine from Mexico, I think, called um, Aventuras de lo Sobrenatural. <laughs> and it's Ooh, a. Yeah. I haven't it, heard of that. That must be a new one. 
Well, this is from the 70s, I think. that the, I think there's a date on it. And I put it up on UFO Mystic once, and I actually wow. translated all the, with my limited Spanish, because I think it's written for Spanish of like, you know, for a fifth grader. So it's easy for me to understand it. Like, oh, know, yeah, uh, 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 you know, Noche de los Lobos. I mean, that's an easy one, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> right, 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 right. So anyway, I can, it's actually still hanging in my room. It's so funny. Go on. Wow. As I said, there were a, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of um, those publishing houses that don't exist anymore would churn out magazines, um, you know, in sepia ink, or they would just be all illustrated, like Duda, the, the famous Mexican magazine of the 70s, was all illustrated in, let's say, I don't want to say Marvel Comics style, but there's definitely a, a Jack Kirby style to it. Yeah. Uh, but everything, they only had the basic colors. They had sepia, orange, and blue. <laughs> That's all they had. Those were the colors. And they had all these, I mean, they, I, I, you know, I'm not going to say they, they gave me nightmares at the time, but there was... a one issue of Duda and those, you know, those colors, sepia blue and, 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 and gray, basically, was about the, uh, the Cisco Grove. And oh, that's one of my favorites. The guy that was in the tree yeah. and lighting piece of his clothes that's on fire. It. Yeah. That's it. My, that's, that's my very favorite case. To me, that's the one, the one to beat. And I understand someone wrote a book about it recently. I, I don't know. Maybe it, I'm not, I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, this publication, Duda, also, while it was giving you a magazine with UFO cases taken from Frank Edwards' books, <laughs> uh, because they, they weren't a UFO publication. They were like, you know, a broad, a broad spectrum paranormal. They would actually, I, I now realize, they would grab a copy of, you know, Stranger Than Science or Strangest of All, and they would just give it to the um, illustrator. And they'd say, here, draw out the story, like storyboarding. Yeah. And what they were publishing was beautifully storyboarded versions of what Edwards was writing, you know, and translated into Spanish. Yeah. And then at the same time, they were publishing a series of little paperbacks um, on every single subject under the sun, having to do with paranormal, UFO, New Age, general esoteric uh, pursuits, and it was simply, you know, for the price to be able to say um, that I know everything I know about Edgar Casey, having read a magazine that cost the equivalent of 80 U.S. cents. Uh, you know, that's not too bad. <laughs> they were superbly illustrated in that Jack Kirby style yeah. and very, very well written. Okay, so the colors were, you know, off, but who cares? Yeah. Uh, Orange and black. Yeah. Combination. Yeah, the uh, Sobrenatural is uh, orange, black, and yellow. That's all I can see on the cover. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, that, that was a lot of the... I, I'm guessing for some reason, maybe they thought, if you make it full color, they'll think it's a comic book. Um, but, you know, they could have just made it, much like um, the um, Spanish fantasy, the like Conan the Barbarian kind of story, Sword and Sorcery, which is just straight... You know, straight black and straight black and white printed wraps. That's all. Yeah. Uh, but I guess they figured giving it that orange, orange and black, blue and black, black and gray, orange, you know, sepia, that added to the mystery. And I think that's that's also very um, 
a very um, interesting note from an economic perspective. People here could afford the 95 cents, $1.50 of the paperback cost. In South America, books have always been somewhat out of reach, uh, even magazines. So if you had information that you could convey to an audience in a little, you know, 20-page magazine with illustrations and a couple of stories in the back, um, you were reaching an audience that could really fork out the 80 cents and, and actually read it, benefit from it, be interested, you know, stay curious, like they yeah. say. But uh, even their little paperbacks were no more, I'm going to say, by the old exchange rate, no more than $1.25. Yeah. So they did a great service. Um, a lot of information that would have been forgotten that was never, ever put down on paper uh, survived. And uh, whenever I find one of these things, I try to, you know, hold on to it, cherish it. And if I can include it in my own writing, I certainly do. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I should. I think you commented on that. I said, hey, you interested in uh, translating any of this? I was going to send that Aventuras magazine to you. <laughs> Maybe yeah, I'll just scan yeah, the pages yeah. and uh, send you a few and see what you think. I mean, I can, yeah, sure. I can understand probably about 75% of it because, like I said, it's written for fifth graders, I think. Um, right, right. But not not all of it totally, and you know, and the illustrations are great. Uh, you mentioned earlier, and I know you translated one of my favorite UFO books that I that just slips off my radar every time they're talking about. What's your favorite UFO books? And it's Visionaries, <laughs> Mystics, and Contactees by Salvador. Is it Freshado or Freshado? Freshado, Freshado. Okay. Yeah, and you know, I remember Peter Stenschel wrote the uh, the review. Yeah. In the way back when. Yeah. yeah, I'd never forget it. It was a very, very, it was a glowing review. And I, it, it, very, very kind of him. Yeah, I still, I just got an email from Peter the other day. He li he lives like, you know, five miles from me still. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I, I remember um, that particular book, and thank you for mentioning it, that was what I was going to say a little bit earlier, a couple of minutes ago that I would have just been happy, you know, with everything I knew and I'd read back in the 70s, and I was sort of getting back into it in the 80s, just, you know, offhandedly, um, remaining a spectator in the UFO field. Yeah. Um, but then I read Valet's Dimensions, and he said that the works of Salvador Freixedo being unavailable in English. And I said, well, that cannot be. And I decided to, you know, launch into translating all of his books. And the one that we managed to publish, thanks to the late Ron Bonds, was Visionaries, Mystics, and Contactees, which appeared under different um, titles in Spanish. Yeah. And people consider it one of his weaker efforts, but it was the smorgasbord of what the man's about, his mixture of UFO, paranormal, his great interest in parapsychology, um, and it was all encapsulated in that book. So I remember that very same day, Peter wrote a glowing review, and uh, Jerome Clark panned it. So I'll never forget it. What did Jerome Clark say? Jerome Clark, uh, if I remember correctly, his review in Fate had nothing to do with me, with the project. He seemed to be fighting a war against John Keel. <laughs> oh, that's why. Okay, that. I get it. 
Yeah. Said that Keel wrote the foreword to Visionaries. Yeah. And Clark was saying, well, Trecedo is just more Keel. It's just more, you know, he's, he's, he's singing to the choir, and it's, it's a song of John Keel, something to that effect. Yeah. And, um, and it's like, yeah, but what does that have to do with it? <laughs> with the, did you read it? Yeah, um, that, that and so yeah, what? No, no, it, it, um, that just means he has yeah, a problem yeah, with it, John it, it Keel. Great. That just means he has a problem exactly. with John that, Keel, it, and, and it, he should, uh, that, that uh, you know, that, that f uh, prejudice shows through very, very, very clearly. And um, as you know, uh, and probably you feel the same as I do, that Keel had, although I don't know if he's uh, accurate all the time, shall we say, right, uh, right, right. It, <clears throat> it didn't matter because he went out in the field, did the research, and said things and thought things other people hadn't and threw things in a completely different direction. And uh, if people say, well, that's, you know, it's just because it's his theories, like, well, of course they're his theories, but if you, it's a new lens to look at things. And if nothing else, you get, um, you, it re-energized me in the, about the UFO, in the UFO and paranormal just by reading his stuff. No, I didn't take it all as gospel, or at least I don't now, but I, I think it's still very important, just like Valet's stuff is still very important, and Freshedo is still very important, and and Greg Little and, and and Jim Brandon's book, and all these things that people don't normally discuss. That's right. That's right. Uh, now that you mention it, um, I think in watching, there's a video, of a DVD of Keel circulating on, on eBay that I happened to get, and it seems to be someone just put all his presentations at different, at I guess the info convention, different right. places like this would have these live shows. Yeah. And he keeps repeating, I think, something that is very, very important that no one picks up on. He says, folks, remember, we're only seeing lights. And I think to me that's always been the key. It's these lights that seem to be polymorphous, uh, that can do all kinds of things. That, that light may be a disc, it may become a big hairy monster, it may become a gray. But you're seeing these lights. What is behind? What is the source? Where do they come from? Mm -hmm. um, I seriously don't think they come from another planet. But if they're coming from another dimension, another reality, are they part of the um, Spiritus Mundi that Jung spoke, wrote of? Um, is it actually a Gaia? Does Gaia have nightmares? Are these the nightmares of a planet having these mock entities, much like what we dream. Our dreams are sort of strange versions of reality with their own characters. Maybe the planet dreams. Maybe the planet dreams uh, different versions of creatures that it sees in its midst. I mean, we don't know. And of course, this is not what people want to hear. People, look, I always go right back. Mothman prophecies. Keel says, we are a society that grew up with comic books and science fiction. We believe in things that have to do with other planets, spaceships, aliens. A technological society will say, look, if it, if it landed, and if it had tr you know, three legs, obviously someone built it. It probably has nuts and bolts and seams. So therefore, they must come from another planet. But it's still, to my mind, I mean, just, you know, it's quite a leap to make. Is there life in the universe? Probably, you know, bugs on other planets or something. But I still don't, I, I never quite got it. I never, I never saw the, um, the, uh, the ardent 
belief with which people say they come from that planet and they're going to give us the cure for cancer. I mean, that, I never got it. Yeah, well, that's that's the belief thing again, and uh, the the I guess it's called the will to believe. And I, I take it at, uh, my my step further is people need something to feel like to hold on to. They have to feel like they have something that they're right sure. about. And I don't I don't know where that comes from. It's it's a security thing, I guess. But in a society where everything's taken care of for you, generally, if you if you can keep a job. You don't really have to worry about that stuff, and all of it becomes ideas. And why are ideas so frightening? I don't, I, I don't know. And I don't know why it bleeds into the UFO thing. I mean, well, I do know why it bleeds into the UFO thing and the paranormal, and that's, that has a stranglehold on uh, something we don't even know what it is, and we already a lot, a lot of people think they know what it is, and that just shuts everything down. And... It's uh, it keeps any any progress from being made, and it's that certainty thing, and that needing to be right thing, and the security that I have a set of beliefs and opinions that um, I'm going to ch- you know I'm going to defend um, instead of learning. Uh, I I th- you know not just the UFO thing, but in all aspects of life, and like I, like I said, these are all just ideas. Why not take them someplace that they've never been before that are, are more interesting or more fun or whatever. And, and Keel did that. And, and, um, uh, Micah Hanks, I think is doing that now. Mac Tony's did it before he passed away a couple of years ago. But like I said, these are all just ideas and, uh, the, the more the merrier. And I don't know why people should be scared of them. And you can take each idea and theory on its own merits and it doesn't have to be bought completely or rejected completely. It's, uh, it's so much more fun that way, I think. Well, you know, that's, I, I think that is probably, that holds the key to, to the riddle. Um, my wife taught in Spain for many years at the university level, and she says, you know, she's not just been teaching here stateside for about two decades, mm-hmm. and she says, you know, I realize people don't get to talk enough. There's hmm. no, I guess, no, we live a huge distance. It's a gigantic country. You know, once you go home, you never come back. You're not going to meet at the same place unless you're a college student. And no one gets a chance to sit around and just, you know, have great bull sessions, just throwing ideas back and forth and laughing about it. Uh, so when you take on an idea, it grips you, you become a crusader. And you, you just don't have it like, like you do in Spain, for example. People toss ideas around. Uh, lightheartedly, but still with interest. Yeah. Um, so, so you do get it. I'm guessing in other societies, and I think I, I did this somewhere else. I, I broke into my old sociological, uh, the uh, high context uh, societies. High context polychronic societies behave differently than low context monochrome. You know, it, 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 it's simply you have some cultures, the French, the Italian, the Mediterraneans in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, are able to, um, I'm guessing, absorb more. They're more about play than about work. They um, different ways of seeing things than, let's say, the northern Germanic cultures, which are keep it simple, do your job, you know, retire, go on a cruise, then die. So, <laughs> so right there, you have to, <laughs> no, I, I, I please, I kid. But um, but the idea that look why can't this be? Let's talk about UFOs coming from the bowels of the earth. 
let's talk about ancient astronauts. Let's talk about, without anyone saying, okay, this is going to be the paradigm, we're, we're all going to believe in ancient... No, no it's just it, these are things. I think you're right. I think that's what... I, I've always had this incredible uh, uh, pull and regard for Italy. And I, it may, you may have hit it on the head there. It just seems like they don't really worry about too many things. They worry about what they need to worry about. They get things done, but they're quite interested in one, you know, having fun and and have their creature comforts. And then, you know, on top of that, the intellectual life is, is like you said, there there are no real authorities. And if they are authorities, people don't take them that seriously. Right, right. No one, um, you know, they they don't. They tip their caps, you know, to uh, to whoever happens to be, you know, saying something. But it, it's uh, the idea of cafe society, of sitting outside oh, yeah. late at night and talking about what you read, or you know, was Trevor Constable right? Are they critters in the sky? You know, yeah. It, it, people would probably think right now if you did that, you are, um, you know, you're 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 very much unorthodox. You're uh, you're fringe. And not part of the conversation. Uh, but then again, uh, these ideas, as you, as you just said, that these are ideas. And I think we should give the people who circulate them until, you know, I think I, I, I tell someone online very angrily, uh, the day that a flying saucer actually crashes and they're picking the bits and they can analyze the metals and perform autopsies on the crewmen, then it becomes the extraterrestrial hypothesis and it stops being a problem of ufology. It becomes much more a problem for the military, a problem for astronautics, and a series of other agencies and disciplines will then become involved. Yeah. But the minute you can ascertain that it comes from another planet, it's the end of UFO study. Um, and I think a lot of people don't probably don't don't uh, don't consider that. Yeah. Well, I. I... I've talked about with this with people on the show that as soon as it's uh, as soon as there's some sort of answer that most people agree upon, ufology, any anybody you know studying it, anybody that kind of staked their reputation on this, it, they um, for whatever reason they will nobody will listen to them anymore. They won't have to. They're gonna yeah. they're gonna go yeah. to the 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 official word for this. And I don't think that's what the that's one thing the uh, disclosure people don't realize. If if they get what they want, nobody's going to listen to them ever again, and they'll be for completely forgotten. That's it. That's it. And all these books and all these things that the, we have around mean nothing. Now we know. Now we know they come from planet, you know, something, and um, that's going to be a problem for the military, for NASA, for the health authorities and may be concerned that we've been contaminated, you know. Uh, but this, it, it may also bring an end to this cargo cult idea about <laughs> UFOs that seems to be permeating more and more. Yeah. Um, well, actually, as you say that, and after you brought it up, I'm thinking we both know that's highly unlikely. Of course. Of course. But I still see a lot of... Um, I'm guessing just people, you know, writing um, in these long, you know, these internet lists with different people, just, you know, writing whatever they can. Um, the idea, the notion that they 
you have to accept that they are ETs from a given planet, that they're humanoid, that they're actually kind of nice to look at, and that when they come, they are going to end a number of societal ills. They're going to give us a cure for certain diseases. Um, and I'm thinking, we're in, you know, they're aliens, so we can't assume what they're going to do. But we're in human history. We find that people just came to give you something for nothing. Didn't happen to the Aztecs, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Didn't happen to the Bainos, I mean. <laughs> so, um, this cargo cult mentality, I, I don't know where it comes from. I guess it's a charming holdover from the contactee days. But um, when you start seeing people who should know better, thinking about, well, imagine the minute they land, they're going to give us free fuel, or we'll, be, we'll have our own spaceships. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. The Aztecs never got caravels from the Spaniards, I'll tell you that much. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've you dealt with people that are, and worked with people from uh, specifically his, you know, uh, Spain and uh, Latin America and South America. Um, how do they, and the, these people, you know, what I'm saying, they're researchers uh, into the UFO and the paranormal. Uh, how, do they, how do they perceive American research? I mean, do they think it's too centered on th certain things, or is, is there any general opinion, or is it positive or negative, or bemused, or uh, respectful, or what? Well, it's interesting. Um, many, um, many, I'm going to say most, uh, are unmindful of what's going on because of the language barrier. Uh, they think, look, if, if, if National Geographic shows a documentary, History Channel shows something, it's dubbed into Spanish or subtitled, then they're aware. But if it's written, not really. Um, there was, and I'm going to keep identities safe, but there used to be a, a good friend, Spanish researcher, um, who said, you know, of course, um, what is it? The Americans are the intermediaries between man and God or something to that effect, saying <laughs> that, of course, we have to go through them yeah. to deal about UFOs or whatever. Yeah. And they've had their own organizations that have nothing, very little informal ties, perhaps, to MUFON uh, representatives. You have the MUFON guy in Spain, guy in Portugal. Yeah, you have that kind of stuff. Um, in Argentina, I noticed that over the past two decades, there's been slight anti-American sentiment, not, even, not necessarily in, in, in UFO either, because of what they perceive a strong U.S. military presence in Argentina, testing a lot of aircraft that have proven to be, that have been reported as UFOs and have proven to be something military. Uh, that's caused a lot of um, disquiet, bad feeling, you know. Uh, and that's the perception of, that you guys are obsessed with your things happening up there. We're, we have ours. For example, this past week, I, we translated a rather long piece on Corporal Valdez, He's what I would say the true Chilean Roswell. Uh, this is a corporal of the Chilean army yeah. who was leading a platoon in the desert in 1977 and encounters a light. Um, he, witnesses are all his soldiers. He walks to the light. He feels he's possessed by these voices, entities. And the story has been told in many different ways. And it's always been turned into some kind of alien experience. I, I put an alleged CE3. No one is sure. The protagonist, 
became religious, he became a uh, an evangelical pastor, he says nothing ever happened, but then sometimes he contradicts himself and says, yes, something did happen. But it's a kind of case that keeps coming round and around. Every couple of years it comes round. Mm-hmm. And the latest incarnation is now a transcript of the original recording made on the night of the experience. Uh, yeah, that's and what you had up on the site. People, that's right. That's, that's our latest. Um, and, and this is very much like we keep talking about the debris field. What happened there? What happened? They're going on, well, Corporal Valdez, was he sober? Was he drunk? What about the soldiers? Was there a dog present? Was there not a dog present? Huh. So it's something that will never, ever be solved, even though you have the main protagonist there saying he's not going to talk about it again. Yet, he does, every every so often. So, I think we do have um, equi- Roswell equivalents in every country. I think Spain has the so-called Manises incident, which still, my God, that's as controversial or more, more so than Roswell, uh, involving a sighting by an Iberia pilot of a UFO low over the horizon. Mm-hmm. And the Spanish Air Force was mobilized, and if I remember correctly, the pilot asked his base, do you want me to expel this intruder from Spain? You know, well, what do you want me to do with it? I see the, the light is flying circles around me. Yeah. And uh, books have been written, and the captain was accused of being derelict, uh, there was character assassination saying that he had a relative who was part of the Basque terrorist group. <laughs> so w- whatever they could do to just assassinate the man's character and, you know, just render him useless to anyone, they did. They took it very seriously. And I think that it's still one of those bones of contention every so often. Uh, when people start talking about an incident, it's it, the very same back and forth controversy you see in Roswell, but with a different with a very local flavor. And I'm sure France has its own case. I'm sure Italy, they probably still go back and forth with the Fortunato Zanfreda incident. Was he abducted by aliens? Did they take him away and never return him? I'm sure we all have our little nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have read through your site occasionally, and then again um, recently uh, in Explicata. Um, People, you know, it's uh, at the top, it says the Institute for Hispanic Ufology. And as you go down the page, you realize there's reports on, um, uh, of a guy seeing the dead, of teleportation, that interesting case from Spain and the people, the two guys in the car, flying humanoids, the, the green thing, green man that was flying through the air, and then they, I don't know if he fell in the water or what. Um, but there's all these different things right. at the site. It's 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 not just UFOs. Uh, what's the reason for that? I mean, I could guess maybe, but uh, it, th- this must be some personal thing of yours. You know, that's that's actually it's a very good observation. I think I always felt, and I think this has also come up with my discussions in the '90s with um, with Dr. Lada when we were starting to form IHU. You know. Uh, we sort of felt that there's a big, the big bag of the paranormal, uh, the big set of the paranormal contains many subsets, and ufology is only one of them. Um, And you start finding their little threads that lead from ufology back to the main set. 
uh, people who see ghosts may see UFOs. Places where UFOs have seen landing are known for entity sightings. Uh, places where telekinesis and pyrokinesis, especially in Chile for some reason, hmm. are known to occur have also been sighting. Places where shadow people are seen, where UFOs have been seen hovering over. So you start seeing that UFO, it's not... If, if you if you embrace the, the ETH, then you want to take ufology out of that out of, out of that paranormal set. Yeah. But when you actually take that long, hard look, you say, no, this is just another manifestation right. of, um, of the paranormal in all its bizarre glory. And uh, you, you see this very, very distinctly in some of these cases that you'll see in Explicata. We'll see, we'll do, we'll have a, um, if there's something parapsychological happened, if you had a ghost event. There's a recent, a uh, couple of months ago, there was something about a ghost in Michoacan, in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And that is also an area where they've also had sightings of, as I said, it, it, it's where sightings and time-honored myth and monsters and strange things seem to just emanate from this one central point of, of convergence. Um, and I think that that's... And also, going back on a very, very personal note, there was a pilot for a TV show that I don't think was ever aired. I believe it was an Australian show called The Spiral Effect. And... It was an X-Files before the X-Files in the 70s. Mm. And it had these researchers, and they would go into a haunted house. One of them was tracking down a UFO phenomenon. One was tracking down something else. And at the end of the pilot, they were trying to sort of link everything together as part of the so-called spiral effect. And that probably stayed with me to a certain extent, feeling that, that, that these things are connected by very subtle threads in one way or another. Would you venture to say what kind of threads they're connected by? Uh, maybe I haven't given it that much thought. But everything seems to be like an offshoot. Let's say if everything comes out of the paranormal, the place, that great um, point of convergence from which your ghosts, your monsters, and your UFOs emerge from, is clearly something that manifests in our reality, but comes from elsewhere, from a parallel universe, another dimension. And of course, remember, we throw, or I do at least, I throw these terms around that may not coincide with a mathematical definition of another dimension, of a Euclidean other dimension of some sort. Uh, in fact, I think Flechelo was very, very careful. He said, we have to beware since we're not the scientists, the physicists who know about these things, to say another level of existence, another plane, because we don't, if we start using dimension loosely, then we're accused of not knowing what we're talking about, and it's probably true, since we don't have the mathematical um, background to, to, to define these things. Very much like in academe, many times the non- the, uh, the average person says, I'm going to read a poem. Uh, the academic has a language 
uh, you know, they, they use semiotic analysis, they'll use a Bactinian analysis, you know, deconstruction. They have their tools. Mm-hmm. And I guess mathematicians would approach it in, in, a, in a way that, that we can't. So therefore, yes, all these things, the, the threads would emanate from this one point in another level of existence that we can only speculate. But, and I've, I've said this, I think, from my, one, one, of my, one of my many TV appearances in the past, um, what we end up seeing, what we end up being faced with, is the beach. Imagine an intelligent fish um, underwater. He sees a human coming in the skin diving out of the you know, regulator. The human is now in his element, swimming around, you know, inspecting the corals, picking up stones. Human gets out of the water, takes off his mask and his regulator, and goes off. The fish cannot do the same thing because it's going to die. But in some way, these entities, we are the fish in this case, and these forces, these chupacabras, mothman, Bigfoot, I, I believe Bigfoot to be paranormal, UFOs, they come into our reality, but we cannot follow them. Uh, perhaps some of us have and have died, uh, become lost in another reality. We're simply, we're simply not designed to function where these things came from. And yet, that there seems to be, in, in my philosophy this point of convergence that generates all these things yeah uh the the first thing i think of and i'll get to i was going to make a point with it well i'll make the point right now um to me that question about what what is this where does this all come from how is it connected i think the first thing you have to look at is us our perceptions right I think that's the connecting that that's the only way we have a a, a line into it, um, or one of the few is you know what do we bring to the table when one of these things pops up, um, what what is our perception, what you know if there's more than one witness did they all see the same thing when you get them apart, what if there's something that goes on and on for a long time do everybody see it the same way. Uh, and then there's you know Valet's thing of uh, he had that matrix of uh, of uh, witness matrix or I can't remember what it was called but there there was a um, it took into account uh, what was seen uh, what effects there were on the environment um, right and then most importantly I think lasting effects what happened to the witnessed afterwards. Did their life change? What did they think about it later? Did they forget about it for a long period of time? All these things, um, and to me, that a lot of that, you know, half that equation is 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 the witness. Right. Uh, in other words, if there's no one to see him, does Mothman bother to appear? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you've you've yeah. distilled it down to the yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. If Chupacabras, you know, Chupacabras has his own agenda, but if Mothman doesn't have an audience, maybe he'll just sit it out. But, um, but yeah, no, I agree. What do we bring to the table? What do what does our brain have to do with it? And yeah, I'm looking at uh, Valet's what was it called? The classification of anomalies related to UFOs. The A A A N one A N two. Yeah. And you're right. What is the effect? on the UFO, on the witness of the phenomenon, whether it's a ghost, whether it's an entity, whether it's a, a putative spaceship. Uh, 
what happened to them later. Uh, we used to read in the 70s of families falling apart because much like the protagonist in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he couldn't stop thinking about it. Yeah. And he would drive everyone to distraction and was becoming a liability. Um, in Latin America, rather, in, you can always come up with a couple of cases of people who had very, very negative outcomes. Yeah. And some who had incredibly positive outcomes, but associated it not with UFOs, but with angelic phenomena. Yeah. So see, right there, the experiencer tinges the outcome with his own, his or her own beliefs, naturally. Yeah, of course. And I, I think that, especially in the United States, I don't know about other places, routinely ignored. Um, you know, one of the questions on the, 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 uh, the dreaded MUFON field investigators uh, uh, manual, um, actually, one of, the one of the questions missing is, what, how did right. it make you feel? Um, and furthermore, how do you feel about it now, a week, a month, a year later? Uh, what what were the lasting effects? I think there's a whole bunch of there, there are there's a lot of data and a lot of clues there uh, as to what's going on. Uh, it's it's like seeing you know, a lot of times people see UFOs. If it's close enough, it's a life changing thing. Um, it's like seeing the most important piece of artwork you ever saw in your life, or the most important movie, or reading the most important book. But it's basically contained in you know thirty seconds or a minute or two minutes of something that just doesn't have any reference in your you know for your life and what how did that how did that affect you I think there's a there's a lot that could be gained from asking that question of people I think a lot of people you know by and large if they if asked the question I think a lot of just from looking at people they they, they seem to regarded as largely positive. Um, I knew an, an abductee in Puerto Rico in the mid-90s who said that they had been hypnotized and they, um, they, they sort of believed what they had heard on the tapes, heard themselves say on the tapes, but they wish it never happened. It, they didn't find it constructive. It hadn't affected their lives in one way or another, but they felt, you know, uh, maybe, maybe it shouldn't have happened. Other people who are, to this day, I believe, holding on to valuable information, valuable photographs, valuable early videotapes with, uh, you know, Sony Handycams, the old stuff. Yeah. Um, videotaping objects and thinking, look, this was for me. This is of religious significance for me, and I'm not going to show it to anyone. Yeah. Uh, so you have that kind of the uh, the religious um, response that this was a portent, this was a message, a messenger of salvation, a hidden portent of some sort, and it's for me only. I'm not going to debase it by sharing it with anyone. I've seen that. That I've seen. Yeah. Um, I think that you, you mentioned something that it always strikes me. If you'd seen the most important piece of art, if you had gone to a castle you'd never been to, or you'd seen a mountain, and you, you, you saw it under particularly good weather conditions, and it just bowled you over, and you can hold that image in your mind. That's what I would imagine a UFO experiencer would, exactly, just as you described it, 
this would be something that you could just close your eyes and see it. And very much like art, music, film, uh, scenes in movies that have simply captivated viewers, uh, lines of dialogue that you know, people repeat still to this day. Yeah. And you're right, it would have that, seeing a Bigfoot would have that effect. Uh, seeing the Mothman would certainly have that effect. But the people who had nightmares, who had woke up screaming, you know, after that, who had other encounters, subsequent encounters, repeaters, mm-hmm. as they used to call them in the magazines in the 70s. Yeah. Um, I've noticed that some of them, you know, despaired, and others simply became apathetic. It became part of their life, like seeing um, a particular bird perching on a tree behind your house. You know, you just, you take it for granted. And maybe now that reaction is in of itself fascinating, you know. Yeah. At what point do you become so blasé that you're going to have, you know, Bigfoot in the backyard? Oh, geez, he's there again. <laughs> <laughs> you know. You know that's um, yeah that. And again, I, I'm speaking as someone who's never seen anything in the skies that I thought didn't have an explanation. I think I was telling this to. Uh, Keith Bastianini, who used to be with Stan Gordon's organization, mm-hmm. a good friend, great researcher, um, I said, look, I would have to see something at treetop level for me to say that structured craft, there's something there, military, interdimensional, interplanetary, whatever. But a light in the sky, no matter how much it jumped around, or what, I, it, I, I couldn't. I would, I would still say I have not seen one. I've seen a lot of strange things in the sky, especially in Puerto Rico in the late 90s. Um, but nothing that, you know, it could have been anything, but not what I would expect from years of, of reading and studying and, you know, memorizing cases and writing about them. Nothing that would say, oh my God, yeah, that was definitely the sighting. I, I really, I haven't either, Scott. I've seen a couple of things in the sky that one was so far away. It was, it's just, uh, uh, inconclusive. And the other one was over the Nevada test site in southern Nevada that I saw. It seemed to be that's where it was. I saw it from Death Valley at about 3 in the morning. It was just a big, bright light that was a lot wow. brighter than a star. And I looked through, at it through binoculars, and it just looked like, you know, the, the atmosphere was making it change shape. That was just the air doing that because it was a desert uh, at night, but there's still heat coming up. Right. Anyway, it was very, very, I mean, it was... It wasn't a star. It was it was something else. And then I just looked at it. it. Just stayed in the same spot for the longest time. And then when I came out later to look at, you know, I went back inside the my room and then I came back out again like twenty minutes later or half hour later it was gone. So, but I didn't stay out there because it wasn't moving or doing anything. So I don't know what the hell it was. But I'm not going to call that a. I guess it's a UFO because it was in the sky and I didn't know what it was and it wasn't something I could identify as something normal. So, but it wasn't spectacular. It was something that, that met the broad definition of UFO. It was flying and it was unknown. Yeah. Uh, if you've never seen a baseball being thrown, you know, it's also, it's also a UFO. Um, in, in Puerto Rico, around the time when all the, um, the, the UFO activity was taking place, I remember seeing this object. It was pink. It, was like, it looked like the pink bulb on a strand of Christmas tree ornaments. Huh. And it was not very high in the sky, and it was in a built-up area. It was over Condado, which is a tourist district in San Juan. 
And it simply moved very, very slowly, far slower than a plane at that altitude, vanished behind a very small cloud and never came out. Um, You know, could have been anything, but stayed with me. I guess the fact that it never came out should should have been the big thing was the color. It was this very, very luminous pink, very much like a Christmas tree ornament. It was was remarkable. But I would have to see something, you know, show me more. Yeah. For me to say, yeah, I've seen something. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people have said that, that they had perhaps been seeing these things for a long time, but never really um, thought they were seeing anything in particular, just lights, lights in the sky especially in the mid-90s, early 90s, when you had all the Laguna Cartagena stuff in southwestern Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. You had the fishermen. The fishermen in the fishing Caribbean waters said, oh, we see all these things at night, and they, they fly around, and they you know, do circles, and we just they enjoyed the light show. <laughs> that was it. Uh, it was later on, exactly, no, it, it's later on when they were told about UFOs and so that they started, you know, that they informed themselves with the UFO lore of the time and said, oh, yeah, that must be the greys coming in. Yes. Oh, they ruined you it. Take, um, you know, sure, you take basically innocent witnesses, you start front-loading them, yeah. and before you know it, you know, you have, um, what do you have? You get what you get. Yeah, that's why I like reading um, uh, not just UFOs, but anthropological accounts before... Uh, before anybody has had a chance to make up their mind about something. Um, yeah, exactly. You, you can see that. It, you, know, M, you know when MTV started, the videos all looked different for like 10 years, and then after a while they all looked the same because everybody knew what they were supposed sure. to do. And that's how I feel about the UFO thing, and that's how I feel. One of my favorite books, actually, and I'm sure you either know about it or have read it, is uh, Cabeza de Vaca's um, account of being in basically in the United States in the late 15th century, I think. But he was the first person that anybody, uh, anybody that was living in the in the North America had seen that wasn't uh, Native American. And his account of who he saw and how they reacted to him is, is fascinating to me. I've read that book probably five times. That's amazing. But, you know, I, th- I think you've just given a great metaphor by using music video there, yeah. because it's true. At, at, that, at 1981, music videos were few and far between. You had Bowie made some, Michael Nesmith made some, yeah. uh, and then you had old promo clips. You had old Scopitones um, from the 60s, and in fact, that's how MTV imported everything from England. They were having their boom. We had old clips, and directors started putting together whatever they could, but once, you, you're right, once we understood what, you know, what, what the moves were, everything became homogenized, and I think, yeah, it does really apply to UFOs. It really does. It really does because reading the stuff from the 50s, you see that people weren't afraid to, um, to think, well, could it be? Could it not be? Uh, others were still pulling their punches. Okay, there's strange things in the air, but they can't have any occupants. And if they have occupants, they can't land. Yeah. Then you start getting landing cases. And it, the game starts changing. And then, of course, you come to the abduction age. And now I'm not sure what kind of an age we're in now, but it just seems to be more lights in the sky. 
but um, it was it's a very very good metaphor. Yeah, the, uh, somebody just commented recently on the on the Rodney Mysterioso side. There was uh, they said that uh, Peter Davenport, I think, uh, from the UFO Reporting Center, said that there's a huge flood of um, lights uh, reports, like glowing orbs of different colors. They seem to be popping up everywhere right now for some reason. Yeah, I think we're going back to I think what, what Ivan Sanderson used to refer to as lights in the sky, the LATS lits. Yeah. And those are the cases that he would always, you know, dismiss first and foremost because they're okay. You're the witness is excited. The witness is driving, is having a cookout, sees a light, light comes close, light goes away. There's the physical reactions. We're just reacting. How does it make them feel? They're elated. They're terrified. They want to call their congressman. A number of different reactions occur. But it's like, you know, these are things that we were just ignoring. At one point, when we started getting the landing reports, the humanoids, um, I'm guessing the abduction period, you know, we were too worried about people's reports and experiences and the books being published to care much about the lights in the sky. Um, but then we're going back to that. I guess you know, it, it's, 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 it's probably a cycle. I mean, we don't... Um, we've only been in the game for 60 years, and so let's see what's going to take us. Yeah, well, I think what, what the game we've been in is, one, you know, most of the world technological, two, um, much better communication, uh, and uh, I don't know what the third one is, but those those two things I think, think contributed to the so-called age of UFOs. There may have been all kinds of reports and things going on before that, but nobody would communicate them to anyone. It would just stay in their local community or whatever. Uh, I think that's part. Of, I, I think we have we, we kind of forget that. Well, if you go back. If you're on the Explicata blog, go back to 2008. You're going to see a photograph. That, of course, photograph could be anything. Mm. But it, it's a black and white photo taken in Mexico in the 1920s. Ah. And it was put up in a bar in the state <laughs> of Guerrero outside Acapulco. And it was only now that um, one of the Mexican researchers, um, uh, my God, I'm, I'm drawing a blank, um, Anna, uh, she uh, happened to be there investigating another case, and she goes to the bar, sees the photograph, takes a picture <laughs> of it, and there was even a story about how this, this strange object had been seen, 1928, 1929, something to that effect. Yeah. And of course, the um, stories of the um, the phantom, phantom zeppelins and all that, you also had them in Mexico. Uh, so whatever was going on, those the, the the airship mystery of the 1890s that was also crossing the border, but it wasn't being documented. I mean, I mean I'm sure the local sheriffs were too too corrupt to bother. Yeah, they were too busy helping themselves to keep reports. So, um, so you know, a lot of stuff that has become oral oral history. You can talk to the grandchildren of the you know the granddads who saw something in the 1920s or 30s. And it becomes oral history. It's just, it becomes folklore. Yeah. But doesn't, you know, not much beyond that. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, we've got a few minutes left. I'm going to spring something on you. We, uh, sure. What I would like to do 
is find your favorite UFO report or an incident and read it in Spanish, the original Spanish, because I want to hear what that sounds like, and I want people listening to the show that know Spanish very well oh. to hear that. Is that. Would that be all right? You want me to read from the blog or just uh, anything at all? Anything at all that you that you want that's like paranormal related, like one of your favorite things that where where you think maybe something might okay. have been lost in the translation, but you you like the case and just to, and take as long as you want, you know, a couple paragraphs or whatever. Well, I was going to say since we are on the subject of, um, gosh, you see, now all my gears have meshed because I have so many <laughs> <laughs> so many cases and things that I that I could certainly be reading from. But I wanted something that would be pithy. Uh, I give you a good idea of what uh, I'm scanning, scanning quickly. Um, oh, it, you can take your time because if you if you want to take a few minutes to look something up, I'll just edit out this uh, space. Oh, okay, okay. Let's see because I do. I know I do have something. I thought about I thought about this be, like uh, ten minutes before I called you. Oh, you see, because <laughs> I could have really, you know, looked for something, but I guess it's more fun on the hop. So let's, you know, because I, I'm right now I'm holding Josep Quijarro's book with his experience that he was at the at the woman's house when he saw oh, the yeah. creature. That sounds that'd be great. And let me see if I can find that paragraph where he says um, what happened. Okay, it's called Un Caso Inesperado, an unexpected case. Mm-hmm. Also, I might want to see... very modest about it. Yeah, I might want to see how much I can actually understand at, like, normal uh, level of Spanish, because if people, people here in Southern California, obviously, like, half the population speaks Spanish. And some people I can understand, maybe 50 That's to 75%. Other ones are speaking so quickly or in a dialect or in such a... As, uh, accent that I almost get almost none of it, so it's very strange. And my wife knows Spanish better than I do, so. Ah, well, tell you what, would you say two paragraphs would do? Well, as as, as much as you want. I mean, That's... you know, we've we. It's like I say, I, we've got five. You know, we've got a couple minutes, but it's like it's, we got as long as we out. want. Sure. We got as long as we want. Okay, here we go. All right, here we go. So what I'm going to be reading is. Uh, from Giuseppe Guijarro's books Infiltrados Seres de otras dimensiones entre nosotros that translates as infiltration, beings from other dimensions among us mm-hmm. and it's page 127 of his book where he um, uh, describes his own sighting of a gray a so-called gray alien at the house of a Catalonian abductee named Judith and um, he has been spending the early evening with Judith, having dinner, talking. They feel a sense of oppression that prompts them to want to retire early to their respective bedrooms. He's awake, and he's um, has a camera with him. In, you know, the strange hope that he's going to be able to photograph this thing. So I'm going to start in Spanish. Uh-huh. Aquella noche, Judith y yo conversamos hasta bien entrada la noche. De pronto el perro se puso en guardia y la televisión empezó a subir y bajar de volumen a su antojo. Intercambiamos una mirada de complicidad. 
cuando todo parecía haber cesado, empezamos a escuchar unos cánticos. No negaré que empecé a asustarme. Con el rectus de terror todavía en la cara, propuse irnos a acostar de inmediato. Si los visitantes existían, si no eran una creación de nuestra mente, aquel día tenía todos los números para cazar alguno. Preparé mi cámara e hice lo propio con la grabadora. Me estiré en la cama y clavé la mirada en el umbral a la espera de que algo sucediese. Mientras, en la oscuridad, percibía ruidos, crujidos y chirridos, y me decía que debía mantener la calma, porque aquella era la forma en que hablaban las casas viejas. Susurré insistente el nombre de Judith, pero no obtuve respuesta. Alrededor de las tres y media, el perro comenzó a aullar, y de repente se oyeron pasos en la escalera. Fue entonces cuando lo vi con pasmosa tranquilidad. La silueta de un ser bajo y con la cabeza grande acababa de cruzar por delante de mi aposento. Mi reacción fue igualmente sorprendente. No articulé movimiento alguno. Solo respiré profundamente y me quedé dormido. Sin saberlo, acababa de engrosar la lista de investigadores que han tenido experiencias mientras se hallaban investigando algunos de sus casos. John Spencer, vicepresidente del prestigioso grupo británico de investigadores Bufora, confesó en el transcurso del segundo Congreso Internacional de Ufología haber sufrido en Florida una experiencia de casi abducción mientras trabajaba en el caso de Catherine Howard. Igual suerte corrieron Leo Sprinkle, Edith Fiore o el propio Bud Hopkins. So, that's a reading from the book Infiltrados by Josep Quijarro, published in Spain by Sangrila Editorial in 1990. Ah. And what he's saying, he's describing the moment where he actually, he hears the house creaking, and he says, old houses creak, this is how old houses speak to us. Yeah. At three in the morning... He said there was the a dog. dog. To yeah. Howl. yeah. That's right. The dog begins to howl at 3.30 in the morning. Suddenly, he hears footsteps coming up the stairway. And that's when he sees um, the silhouette of a short creature with a large head walking in front of the bedroom door. Yeah. His reaction, he says, was just as surprising. He did not make any motion whatsoever. He simply took a deep breath and fell asleep even though he had a camera and a tape recorder in bed with him, yeah. hoping, hoping against hope that this experience would take place. Now, the next day, he, uh, he remarks the experience to Judith, and, um, you know, he says that he, he was able to, to tell her, I, when I started looking into your case, I believe it was all a case of suggestion. Now I see that there's an independent reality to it. Mm -hmm. and that leads him on to the rest of, um, of the, the, the investigation. And as I said, it's a great book. It's very well written and just never ever found an audience. And, I, and now we're, we're in post-abduction, so no one would really care. Uh, I think uh, some people would care for it, maybe not enough. I would love to read it because it'd be uh, a different, slightly different, maybe, uh, uh, maybe you would know, uh, greatly different from 
what we consider the norm in, in American abduction stuff, or even, for that matter, with Whitley Strieber. Right. I think that, yeah, I think just for the sake of saying, look, this is happening, this is, imagine, um, you're, you're seeing something akin to intruders taking place in another country mm-hmm. with a number of researchers discussing the matter. Um, and a number of different witnesses. I think he's, he's working with three different women in different parts of Catalonia uh, when this is happening. And, of course, what's interesting is that um, I think that most of the, the interviews are taking place in Catalonia, not Spanish. And yeah. he's writing the book in Spanish for his, his larger audience. Yeah. But there are a lot of lines of Catalan in it, which are, it's a beautiful language, I think. Yeah, it is. Um, that's and it's different from Castilian Spanish. Catalonian is actually a separate sort of language, right? Catalonian, it's it's Provencal. It's 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 the closest thing to Provencal French. Oh, okay. Um, it's apparently it developed much before Spanish. Um, if I if I remember correctly, you know, college is what twenty five years behind me. So I don't remember most of what I studied, but yeah, Catalonian I think developed as a language before. Um, before Spanish, uh, the Goths that invaded Spain were still speaking Latin, uh, debased Latin. Um, you had the Moorish influence, and by that time, uh, Catalonia was its own. It was part of the, the Spanish mark, which Charlemagne had created as a buffer state between France and Spain. Oh, okay. And from then on, it it evolved into its own country, its own traditions, its own its own heroic literature, which is. Terrific, I might add. And right. of course, they see themselves as a Mediterranean country, not as an inland European country. Really? So I didn't know that. They're always. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, when you study uh, Spain, you can see you have the coast. Yeah. The, the peoples, the peoples of the coast of uh, Barcelona, Valencia, the Balearic Islands, their traditions are completely different from mainland Spain. Oh. Um, and those are the differences. You have the difference between the highlands, the highlands and the people who live by the sea. They're very, very clearly marked. Language, um, their diet, you name it. Yeah. See, we don't get that in the United States because uh, means of quicker transportation prevailed uh, in this country for much of its uh, development. So that the regional, and it's even less now, but the regional differences are uh, far less. And I, I, you know, the, this enters into the UFO and the paranormal thing for people's perceptions. I think just the the, the homogenization of the culture means the homogenization of the uh, perception. Unfortunately, that's right. I think that's what people who come from other countries to live here also notice that they're hoping for. You know, is it ever going to be different? We've driven 500 miles. We haven't really left home, have we? Yeah. And um, they only they they notice that difference in the Southwest. They feel that Spanish influence, they see it clearly in New Orleans. Um, Maybe they see it up, you know, Seattle, because it's different, it's a younger area of the country. But everything else, you're right, the homogeneity is is remarkable. Um, You know, did we just leave that McDonald's, or were we traveling in circles? (laughs) Well, I think we're going to go to New Orleans in a a couple of months here. To me, that's the most foreign-looking place, and the people are... To me, more have held on to their regionality more than other places I've visited in the country. 
You know, I think that's why I love New Orleans precisely because of the history. If you just walk around, you see the streets are still in Spanish yeah. from when it was an, an, an intendancy of, uh, of the Mexican Viceroyalty. Yeah. And there's a street, I'm not sure which, and if any of your listeners are from New Orleans, forgive me, I don't remember, but a street with a plaque saying, if Napoleon Bonaparte had accepted our offer to come to New Orleans, he would have been living in this house. <laughs> and I think that's one of the best things ever. <laughs> Anywhere. And uh, God bless Something him. almost that, happened something. here. Yeah, there's almost, a sign saying some, something almost, almost exactly. happened here. Very nearly, very nearly. And it's interesting because New Orleans also has, it's considered, it was considered the big city for people in the Caribbean when it came to go, do business um, for, for um, any kind of trade they were doing. And of course, there's a great settlement of people from the Canary Islands throughout, um, I'm going to guess, lower Louisiana. And after Hurricane Katrina, the Canary Islanders responded immediately, sending money and supplies oh, wow. uh, to New Orleans, a city that, that means a lot. They have very strong historic ties uh-huh. to New Orleans. Have you? This has nothing to, nothing to do with UFOs, and I don't care, but have you ever read um, the, French, the book The French Quarter by, oh, what was his name? He also wrote Gangs of New York, actually. Uh, Harold Asbury, I think, or Ashbury or Asbury, but he had a book called The French Quarter. Basically, it's a a history of Louisiana all the way back to, you know, the very first settlers. And then he goes to the, you know, the whole colonial era and the flatboat people and how all the, a lot of the buildings there were made from the flatboats that would come down the Mississippi. And they, you know, they weren't going to take them back up the Mississippi, so they just made buildings out of them. Uh, Wow. No, and see, I've, I've had the pleasure. Oh yeah, it's it's oh, it's my favorite hist- history book I've ever read. Um, he talks, yeah, he goes through that. He goes through the uh, Spanish period, the French period. He goes through a whole section on you know when the Americans came, all the he, uh, all the dueling that was going on, and he, he discusses famous duels in New Orleans and of the eighteenth uh, uh, and nineteenth century. Uh, my favorite one was uh, in the house of uh, the, the the state house. Uh, one of the one of the representatives had insulted supposedly another representative, um, but the guy that had done the, in, the had done the insulting was this huge guy, and the guy that was insulted was this little guy, and he uh, he challenged the right. larger man to a duel, and the larger man said, "I'm going to." He said, "I'm going to kick your ass." I mean, we're not going to—they weren't going to duel with guns. I think they're going to duel with something else. But anyway, he just said, "I don't want to fight you. I didn't mean to insult you, so don't worry about it. Just let's just forget it." And the guy said, "No, you have insulted me. We have to have a duel." And by the rules of dueling at that time, the person that was challenged could determine which weapons were used and where the fight was going to be. Uh, so he said, "What were okay?" He said, "Okay, I'll fight you. I, we will have a duel." But the but the uh, the the duel will be fought in um, six feet of water in Lake Pontchartrain with sledgehammers. Oh my god! And the <laughs> the the, the uh, first guy, the guy that had challenged him to a duel, thought that was so funny they became best friends. <laughs> How could they not? How yeah. Could they not? <laughs> because well, also, then, because the guy was under six feet no, tall, it, it, he would have been underwater while the duel was going. 
expected. <laughs> You'd be dead. One of the two would have drowned. Yeah. My gosh. Are they creative or what down there? Yeah, I don't know if that's a true said, story, it's, but it's it's in the book, and it's just one of the many you know hundreds of great stories in that book. But you know, it it also there, there's great resonance, great connection between Havana and New Orleans. A lot mm. of the uh, political exiles were escaping the Spanish uh, governors would go to New Orleans, and they'd right. write their long impassioned you know political rants. And have them shipped back to Cuba and you know, by merchant ships. So it's always a city that's had very, very close. It's much more of an outlying Caribbean city. Yeah. Uh, as I said, just looking at that, the food alone. Right. You know, right. It, you, you know where you are. You know, you feel it in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you, you, I hope you have a great time. Thank you. Yeah, and of course, people listening are going to say, well, of course, that tradition was continued since the uh, Oswald was based there, and there were training anti-Castro Cubans, I think, near Lake Pontchartrain in the in the late 50s, early 60s, all this stuff. I, there's another thing oh, I want to... Huh? Yeah, Alpha 66, those um, yeah. the Cuban uh, terrorists, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, my wife, actually, she's a librarian. She went to Cuba about four years ago uh, to tour oh libraries gosh. and wow. and she she came back and told me stories about what was going on in Cuba and she said that the librarians are some of the only people that actually have access to the internet and even though they're you know they're anti-capitalist and all this they're all using Microsoft Windows and she also said when they, wow. when, they when they'd walk in you could see them all shut down all their chat windows and stuff um, because they weren't supposed oh, to have gosh. those up. I mean, I think by government edict. And she said the libraries were all open air, and the books were all getting moldy because right. they had to leave the windows open all the time because it's so hot and they don't have air conditioning in a lot of these places. So it was very interesting to hear what was well, going on there. Well, you know, I'm sure that she was probably taken to Casa Las Américas, which is the big, uh, the, the, the one big Cuban publishing house, and they do all kinds of stuff. But the libraries throughout the Spanish-speaking world not having a public library system as such. Pretty much information is in the hands of the priesthood. Yeah. And even if you're in Puerto Rico, you go to the university library, you ask for a book, and some girl will say, well, you know, we'll look for it, come back tomorrow. And you'll go back tomorrow, and we never found it because someone stole it. <laughs> um, there was a guy in the, in the 70s, I think it was called Baron De Beer. And he started a lending library in, in somewhere in San Juan. It didn't, it didn't catch. People would just steal books. So you do have the idea that information, old books, manuscripts, are, in, are for, the, for the eyes and knowledge of these old men who meet at meetings, you know, to discuss this kind of stuff. Yeah. And they love their books, and they talk about the old poets. But um, the average person wanting to see something, not a chance, much less Cuba. Yeah. Although I was surprised to see that um, some people, even local UFO researchers, have Internet accounts, hmm. um, which is, you know, with people, they're, they're still ration cards. They shouldn't have this. So maybe you have to be part of the library crowd. Yeah, you to do. To be able to have access to the software, access to the time, yeah. Yeah, it's that priest strange, class you're talking place. about. Yeah. Uh, is yeah, there anything? Yeah, it, it becomes a priest. 
Yeah. Is there anything? Okay. Uh, do you want to give out any information or contact information? I usually have people do that at the end of the segment. Uh, well, just mention, you know, uh, we try to update the blog whenever, whenever new information comes in, um, especially if there's a um, major activity or a case that seems to be developing legs, so to speak. We try to update an explicata every day. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, updates are weekly, and we're starting to post a lot of older information that has now become available, been made, been made available to us by a number of researchers. And it's www.inexplicata.blogspot.com. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Scott. Um, I think we have to do this more often. I haven't talked to you, in at least as an interview on the show, in, what, 10 years? Uh, since, <laughs> since the days of Hungry Ghost, yeah. Yeah, I can't believe you're... And I'm still trying to find that tape. I know I still have it somewhere. (laughs) Oh, I would love... Yeah, because I only had part of it, and I posted that, which I I think you've seen. It's up on the Rado Mysterioso site. So, yeah, if you could find the rest of it, I will change it so the whole thing's there. Absolutely. I'll keep looking. Okay, thanks, Scott. And um, Thank uh, you so much, Greg. Great talking to you. Yeah, same here. I think we should just talk without having being on the show, too. I would like to just talk to you and... About all kinds of junk. Oh, yeah, please. By okay. all means. All Let's right. do it. <laughs> all right. Hey, thanks again. Thank you. I'll talk, talk to you, to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Excellent. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Scott Corrales. And I... Uh, God, that was a really fun talk. Que no lo vemos más por aquí 